Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 2, Episode 14, No Condemnation. Romans 8, 1 to 4. You know, I know you've seen these Bible verses. Maybe they might be on a coffee mug or a t-shirt or something like that. And they're often quoted pretty significantly out of context. And and oftentimes, even though as much as I love the Bible, I do kind of a little bit roll my eyes. Uh, Not trying to be haughty or anything, but it just seems kind of trite. However, I can never, ever tire of seeing the first verse of our passage today. Romans 8 verse 1, which says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is really sweet news, given everything we've studied so far in the book of Romans. Hey, I'm Pastor Steve Treichler. Good to have you with us again on Romans Untangled. I hope you're you're enjoying these podcasts, and maybe you're just diving in right here. Not a bad week to do that. If you're brand new with us, we're taking a little bit of time each week to go over a theological term, just to familiarize ourselves with some of these great doctrinal truths of the faith, and never want to lose the wonder and the awe of, of our awesome God, but at the same time, want to understand some theological terms, and I don't think those two need to be mutually exclusive. However, I know that sometimes theologians choke the life out of, out of everything. We've been looking at for the last, oh, quite a few weeks here, the order of salvation, or in Latin, it is called the ordu salutis. And it just means that the process, the logical process by which God meters out his salvation to us. We've looked at predestination, the gospel call, regeneration, being born again, conversion, our free choice to come to Christ, justification, which means we have a right legal standing before God, adoption, which means we are now in the family of God, and then sanctification, which is the process by which God continues to work in our lives throughout the rest of our lives to make us more and more like him. This week, we're going to talk about an issue that is is very, very timely. I know a lot of people are talking about uh, this particular issue in these days, and it's it's the perseverance. Um, it's often called perseverance of the saints. And Wayne Grudem, in his Systematic Theology, defines it this way. He says, the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. And the, the, there's, there's many, many passages in Scripture um, that we're just going to look at a couple here. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So in this passage, it says running with perseverance, this race that's marked out for us, okay? But then it also says that let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter, the, the, the finisher of our faith. This concept is also repeated in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 6 
where Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So there's this idea in there that, you know, and I remember when I first became a follower of Christ, I just thought I'll never make it. I've never finished anything in my life. I'm one of those guys that has, you know, a bunch of projects sitting around that are half done. And I've got a stack of books by my bed that I've started but not finished. And I'm just thinking, I'll never finish the Christian life. And for me, early on in my Christian experience, I came across something by R.C. Sproul, which really helped me to understand this. He described, he, he says he doesn't really care for the phrase perseverance of the, of the saints. Let me quote from him. Him. He says, I think the catchphrase, perseverance of the saints, is dangerously misleading because it suggests that the persevering is something that we do, perhaps in and of ourselves. I believe, of course, that saints do persevere in faith and that those who have been effectively called by God and reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit endure to the end. They do persevere but not simply because they're so diligent in making use of the mercies of God. The only reason we can give for why we continue in the faith until the last day is not because we have persevered so much, but because we've been preserved. So I prefer the term preservation of the saints because this process this process by which we are kept in a state of grace is something accomplished by God. Now for me early on, that was super helpful. I just felt like, yeah, that's, it's a it's a god it's a god thing he's working in my life right and this is where it's, this whole idea is a beautiful thing and if you even go to the book of philippians um i think he just paul just completely hits this whole idea uh when he states in philippians 2 verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, he says, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Okay, so, wow. Okay, which is it? Am I supposed to like crank this thing out, work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Or is it God who's going to do it all? And the answer to that is yes, in the sense that, of course, one always comes below the other one. In other words, the idea here where he says, work out your salvation, and he says, for, which means it it grounds. In other words, it means it's the because, because you need to know it's God who's working in your life to will and to act, to have you will and to act according to his good purpose. Later on, when I went to seminary, remember reading from my systematic theology, which was fantastic on this particular issue. And he he dealt with the issue of, wait a minute now, John chapter 10 seems to say clearly that anyone who's come to faith in Jesus will never be snatched out of Jesus' hand. And in fact, he's not only in Jesus' hand, the Father has his hand around Jesus' hand, and they're never going to, you're never going to get out of that. But if you look at passages like Hebrews chapter 6, kind of seems that people can fall away. They fall away from their faith, and they are going to uh, lose their salvation, so to speak. And I just, not without getting into it a whole lot here, I don't believe that. I don't believe a person can lose their salvation whatsoever. I want to read this couple paragraphs because they were super, super helpful for me uh, in dealing with this issue. This is from uh, Millard Erickson's Christian Theology, Um, And it's actually, if you want to find it, it's on page uh, 1005. He says, We are now able to correlate John 10 and Hebrews 6. 
While Hebrews 6 indicates that genuine believers can fall away, John 10 teaches that they will not. There is a logical possibility of apostasy. Apostasy means those who fall away from the faith, okay? But it will not come to pass in the case of believers. Although they could abandon their faith and consequently come to the fate described in Hebrews 6, the grace of God prevents them from apostatizing. God did this, not by making it impossible for believers to fall away, but by making it certain that they will not. Our emphasis on can and will not is not inconsequential. It preserves the freedom of the individual. Believers are capable of repudiating their faith, but will freely choose not to. At this point, someone might ask, if salvation is sure and permanent, what is the point of the warnings and commands given to the believer? The answer is that they are the means by which God renders it certain that the saved individual will not fall away. Consider an analogy in the case of parents who fear that their young child may run out into the street and be struck by a car. One way the parents could prevent that from happening is to build a fence around the yard. That would prevent the child from leaving the yard, but would also remove the child's freedom. Try as he or she might, the child could not possibly get out of the yard. That is the idea some persons have of what perseverance is. Another possibility is for the parents to teach and train the child regarding the danger of going into the street and the importance of being careful. This is the nature of the security we are discussing. It is not that God renders apostasy impossible by removing the very option. Rather, he uses every possible means of grace, including the warnings contained in Scripture, to motivate us to remain committed to him. Because he enables us to persevere in our faith, the term perseverance is preferable to preservation. And this is where, okay, that's the end of the quote. This is where uh, Millard Erickson is going to disagree a little bit with R.C. Sproul, although I think in, in, in theory or in practice, they're totally agreeing. But what he's going to say, if you just say the word preservation, it makes it sound like there's this wall that God's build, God builds, and it's, it's not that. There are warnings in Scripture about this. And yet the believer, the believer will follow through with Christ. And and it's just kind of like, you know what? God puts his spirit in you and even through very hard times and even through times of grievous sin or even perhaps backsliding away from from Christ, it's kind of like when you throw a ball for a gold retriever. They are going to chase it. And it's just because of who we are now and what God has done. He's put these things, he's put his spirit within us. We are going to follow him. That's perseverance of the saints. That's something we could spend easily hours and hours discussing, but uh, just something I wanted you to be aware of. Now, we're going to move on to Romans. Big passage this week. It's only four verses, but it's so important. Let me read it. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible this time. Uh, Therefore, verse one, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, uh, Boy, what a beautiful passage, right? And especially if you've been following along in Romans, or sometimes it's fun, maybe it would even be a good exercise here to do, would just be to 
take take 45 minutes or so and read the first seven chapters of Romans right when we get here. So you kind of feel the argument taking place because when he gets to the therefore, therefore, what's he, what's he summarizing? And the, for sure he's summarizing chapter seven, and it seems to be he's even summarizing chapter six. I think he goes all the way back to the very beginning. And this therefore here is now a big, loud declaration saying everything I've been talking about in the first seven chapters here, he's going to highlight it with the summary statement. Here it is. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I want you to just say that out loud with me. And just don't think about the theology for a minute. Think of your own life. I'm just going to Put, put my name in here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for Steve because he's in Christ Jesus. Oh, come on. Come on. If that's not worth the price of this podcast, I don't know what is. Of course, it's free. But, right? That is awesome. I think he's going all the way back. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We come to Romans chapter 3, and it says, uh, after summarizing the way that sin has crept in and that the law of God, whether it's the, the written law of God, the Old Testament, uh, the, the law of Moses, or it was just the law that's written on our hearts, like the Gentiles have, those who didn't have the Bible. He says in Romans 3, 19 and 20, summarizing that whole section, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sights by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. And then we go over to Romans 5, and he's comparing what happened when, when Adam sinned, comparing that to Jesus. And the gift is Jesus, and the one man's sin was Adam. And he says, Romans 5, verses 16, I'm just going to skip 17 for time. And look at verse 18. Romans 5, 16 and 18, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Skipping to verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. And this, this idea of condemnation is something that we have because we're born by nature and by choice. We're born sinners and we sin and we're apart from God. If you remember the most, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, getting outside of the book of Romans here, but going to John chapter 3, it says, for God, this is John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, and this just nails it, right? For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes, believes in him shall not perish, but have ever eternal or everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And not to geek out here too much, but that stands condemned already, that's called the perfect tense. And it means that it was and it is and it will be, right? So it means whoever does not believe was 
already before condemned, they are currently condemned, they will be condemned, condemned because they have not believed in the Savior, the one who can rescue this from, from that. So that this is now a huge declaration in verse 1, where he just comes out and says, listen, all of the things we've talked about, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to kind of tackle this passage by, there are two ways primarily how people interpret this passage. And in my mind, there could be not two more different ways of looking at this passage. So let me explain kind of the two ways people see this. The first way, and it's the way that I'm not going to agree with and the way I don't think makes any sense with what we've been seeing so far in Romans, nor will it when we keep going. But uh, there are some who hold that this would say, uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Skip to verse four, uh, a little bit before the first four, four, where it says, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the first way they look at this and they say, here's what happened. Christ died for sins. He gives you his spirit. The spirit of life, verse two, comes into you. And now that set you free from the law of the spirit of, of um, uh, law of sin and death. And therefore the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us because we walk not by the flesh, but we walk by the Spirit. So now we actually ourselves are filling this requirement of the law, right? So it's the end of verse 4. There is not, uh, it's a means by which it happens. It's a means by which the the requirement of the law is fulfilled. In other words, uh, you know, Christ died for you, paid for your sins, but now he gives you a spirit and you are walking in life and you'll be judged by the requirement of this law by how that works, okay? The other way to interpret this verse, and I'm going to argue, uh, I hopefully that you see it this way as well, is that, that that's not what this verse is talking about at all. Uh, that's, this is saying, no, 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 this is a thing that is done already. This is done. There's past tense in the, in the, in the, uh, in the passage where it says, for what the law could not do, verse three, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, past tense, sending his own son, past tense, in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, that all took place. He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned it. He doesn't say he condemns it. He condemned it. It was done so that the the reason that he does this, the purpose or the result is that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now we'll come we'll come back to why does it say in us? Because you'd think, oh, fulfilled in Christ, right? And and in actuality, that is what he's saying. But uh, we'll get that. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now what what all hangs on here, in my view, is how you understand verse one. If you understand verse 1 to mean uh, a judicial way of speaking of something, the rest of the passage has to go the way I just said. Douglas Moo, in my opinion, nails this section. I mean, he just is so good on it. I I highly commend his his commentary in uh, the New International Commentary on the New Testament. These four verses here, he just kills it. I want to read just a little bit from what he says here. 
Verse one, he says, but the judicial flavor of the word condemnation suggests that Paul here is thinking only of the believer's deliverance from the penalty that sin exacts. Like death, a parallel term in other places in Romans, condemnation designates the state of lostness, lostness of estrangement from God that apart from Christ, every person will experience for eternity. Those in Christ Jesus are removed from this state, are removed forever from it, as the emphatic no indicates. No more will condemnation of any kind be a threat, right? So in other words, if you read verse one, not like that, then you could read like, well, there's no condemnation now because if you're in Christ Jesus, you're changed and you can you can walk accordingly and you'll be judged by your deeds. Um, maybe summarizing a little bit too much. He's arguing against that. There are some who hold that and I, I just think that makes absolutely no sense with, I mean, I, and all due respect, I understand where they're wanting to get there because of the end of verse four, but I just got to be honest. It doesn't make sense with anything else Paul has said. I mean, this whole thing is about Jesus and what he's done. And all of a sudden, it's about us and our behavior. Are you kidding me? I mean, now, believe me, Paul wants change believer for the change behavior for the life of the believer, but he doesn't want you to do it to think you're actually fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. Are you out of your mind? That would, okay, I'm sorry. That, not helpful. Okay. <laughs> so if you see it that way, and I, surprisingly, there are some who hold that verse one is about this judicial way of seeing it. This is proclaiming us to be not condemned, but then they go on later and say, but you got to do this. And it's like, well, which is it? Am I condemned or not? It's just, no, I'm not condemned. I'm not condemned. If you skip down to verse uh, uh, three here. It just makes, I think it just makes it super clear for what the law could not do. It's not the law's fault. Paul just spent all this time talking about the ways of God. They're beautiful, but it was weak through the flesh and to impact, uh, to, to impart what we learned last time, that sin comes in. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they come against us, and it causes us that we can't follow it. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and offering and as an offering for sin, here's what it is. He condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, it is done. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Christ, who knew, he, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, right? So it's he becomes sin for us. It's condemned. It's already taken care of. So then when we get this to, to verse four here, I, I want to, when, when he says this, this requirement of the law, I, I, I want the requirement might be fulfilled in us. I want to, um, I want to go back to Douglas Moo on chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter eight, verse four. He says, two points may be made. First, the passive verb might be fulfilled points not to something that we are to do, but to something that is done in and for us, right? In other words, that we don't, that everybody focuses on the might be part, but it's the be fulfilled. It's something, it's passive. And other passive verbs mean it's not something we do, it's something that's done for us. 
Second, the always imperfect obedience of the law by Christians does not satisfy what is demanded by the logic of this text. The fulfilling of the, and he uses uh, the just decree of the law or requirement of the law, it says in our translation, must answer to that inability of the law with which Paul began the sentence. As we have seen, what the law could not do is to free people from the law of sin and death, to procure righteousness and life. And it could not do this because the flesh prevented people from obeying its precepts. The removal of this behavior barrier consists not in the actions of believers, for our obedience always falls short of that perfect obedience required by the law. As John Calvin puts it, Quote, the faithful, while they sojourn in this world, never make such a proficiency as that the justification of the law becomes in them full or complete. This, referring back to what uh, verse 4 here talks about, then must be applied to forgiveness. For when the obedience of Christ is accepted for us, then the law is satisfied so that we are counted just. So, this is me now. That's that's Douglas Moo. What then is get we getting after here then? So that the requirement might be fulfilled in us. Well, how does that happen? How does that happen? What what what's what's going on here? Well, Doug Moo and I think correctly, very correctly, goes back to the passage. He says the flesh couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. God did it. How did he do it? He condemned sin in the flesh. He goes on to say this. He says, if then the inability of the law is to be overcome without an arbitrary cancellation of the law, it can happen only through a perfect obedience of the law's demands. This, of course, is exactly what Jesus Christ has done. As our substitute, he satisfied the righteous requirement of the law, living a life of perfect submission to God. In laying upon him the condemnation due us all, God also made it possible for the righteous obedience that Christ has earned to be transferred to us all. On Easter Sunday this year, Pastor Kaur at our church quoted from Charles Spurgeon and just this beautiful, beautiful quote where he says, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. You see that? You're standing before God right now is as if you were Christ in his perfect obedience. And he says that's because at the cross, Christ stood before God as if he were us and took our punishment. That is what we call on the Iron Range a heck of a deal, right? Can I, I know you're not there, but can you get a verbal amen on that? That is, that is really an amazing, amazing thing. So if that's correct then, if all this is correct, the last part of this phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit, is actually something it's called, it, it just says it's describing who the us is. It's not saying that it's, instrumental. In other words, that's not how it happens. It's just describing who the us is. Who's the us? Who's the ones that Christ done this for? Who's the one whose Christ's righteousness has been put into our bank account? It's us. And he says, and he could have just said who are in Christ. But another way of saying that is that we now live differently. We don't, we don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
Now, that's just an interesting way to say it, right? I mean, it's just an interesting thing. Well, the primary reason why he does that is because starting, we're going to spend two weeks on verses 5 to 17, uh, just because there's so much there. But he wants to introduce this concept of, yes, we are right now, as believers in Jesus Christ, there's a war going on within us. And it is this flesh, the old nature, the old reality, that is battling with the new reality, the, the new creation. Old creation and new creation are having a, a war, and the right inside of us, our inner man, like we found out last week, and our flesh are at battle. And he's wanting to go after that really clear. And that's why he says this. He says, but you need to understand one thing clearly. And in my view, this is hugely important. You will never be able to go after sin until you really realize that Romans 8.1 is true for you. You, you will never be able to go further in your, your relationship with God until you get very clear that your sins are forgiven. It is, you know, to use a baseball analogy there, it is first base. I mean, you've got to, that is the first thing you need to know, Romans 8.1. And Romans 8.1 says, if you have trusted Christ, it doesn't matter how imperfectly, it just means that you have reached out and said, I can't do this. Jesus Christ, I need you. Be my Lord, my Savior, my guide for living. I want that, and I can't do it perfectly. The word that screams to you this morning is Romans 8.1. And let me quote it here as we close. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. There's none. No matter what your brain or the world or maybe even other people tell you, The devil screams it in your ear. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a fun week. I hope you enjoyed this. I'm really looking forward to the next couple of weeks. We've only got four episodes left, and I'm hoping to bust out a couple of bonus episodes this summer, um, interviewing a few friends who've been highly impacted by Romans. Uh, Next week, we're going to start Romans Romans 8, 5 through uh, 17, but we're just going to go up through verse... 12, and we're going to start this thing, the battle of the flesh and the spirit. Do not miss these next couple of weeks. Have a great week.